So uh, it gives me a real pleasure to introduce uh, Amatana Santi, um, who um, became uh, joined uh, the Amaravati uh, community in 1989 and took her first ordination in 1991 and was a, a nun with the that Amaravati community, uh, which Ajahn Amaro and uh, Ajahn Sumedho and uh, Ajahn uh, Pasano are all a part of, uh, as was Ayananda Bodhi and uh, Aya uh, Santachita and other nuns, and uh, was part of that community for... 20 years, um, and then <clears throat> um, along with some other nuns, uh, left uh, that community uh, and uh, had a, a, a quite um, radical pioneering experience as um, one of the first four uh, nuns, uh, full bhikkhuni uh, ordinations here in, in the States. Uh, that was, um, how long ago was that? Six five years, years ago? Five. Five, five years ago. And uh, you know, as if you're not familiar with the complexities, um, nuns in, in certain, um, in, in the more fundamentalist Theravadan communities, um, uh, they've considered that the nuns' order unfortunately died out and there's not a way to restart it because you need nuns to ordain other nuns. But a number of years ago, five years ago, six years ago, um, this uh, this logjam was broken, and um, there were these first four nuns that were. Um, well, it was Ajahn Brahm the first one that ordained in Australia? He who did he ordain? Was it Tataloka and mm-hmm. some others? Tataloka was the preceptor. Uh huh. So Ajahn Brahm, who was from that community, who lives in Perth, Australia. Um, who was one of the main teachers in the Ajahn Chah lineage, um, said, uh, this is not so. And there's a number of reasons why one could really see that this uh, this is a, a, a false assumption. And he did an ordination in Australia that really um, created... Quite an upheaval in the whole community, uh, the whole Theravadan monastic community, um, because now there also were nuns who could ordain other nuns, and uh, and the flow has has uh, continued, and so the nuns uh, Aya Ananda Bodhi, who's been here, who comes here the third Sunday of the month, uh, along with Aya Santachita. Aya Santusika, uh, Aya Tataloka, uh, and uh, Ama uh, Tanasanti. Uh, more and more, there's a revival in Theravadan uh, uh, 
full bhikkhuni order. Um, so, um, so she is a pioneer, and she um, she lives in Colorado, uh, and is the um, um, founder of Awakening Truth. And uh, I know her as somebody who's uh, very bright, articulate, courageous, outspoken. Uh, that is saying the truth, and uh, and it's a real uh, pleasure and honor to have you here. You so please share the Dharma. Mm. <laughs> Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asama sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asama sambhutasa Udang damang sangang namasami So one of the things that happens with having a human body, heart, and mind is is that we have associative memories. So I was sitting here, and all this flood of memories were surfacing. The first time I met Master Wa at Amravati, the last time I was here in this room with uh, four other bhikkhunis, three other bhikkhunis doing a Patimoka recitation, times when I've met Hong Shur and the various different monks from the city of 10,000 Buddhas, and then over 33 years of knowing James and the first early retreats and these images were just flashing up, you know, of being a teenager on these retreats and thinking, I wonder if James still thinks of me as the slightly histrionic teenager that I was 33 years ago. And then the image would come up of these scenarios and then it would recede back into awareness. You know, so thoughts and then feelings and then the reactions and then the identification of, am I still like this? Well, a little bit. Maybe not. I've changed. And all of this is arising in awareness and known in awareness and recedes in awareness. And when it recedes in awareness, what's left when the memory is gone? Before another memory arises. There's just this radiant, luminous awareness. That's what's there. So we have our bodies and our hearts and our minds, and with them we have all kinds of feelings and impressions and thoughts that arise. That's what happens. And we have choices about how we relate to it. And one of the choices about how we relate to everything that's arising is whether we lean into the object or we relax into the awareness. That's a choice. Because at every moment, anytime anything is arising, it arises in awareness. And so we can focus, we can dial in, we can drill into the thing. The I liking it, I don't liking it, it hurts, it's wonderful, it's fabulous. Oh my God, did I really do that? (laughs) Or we can relax into the mind that knows, the holding, the spaciousness, the, the luminosity 
that is receiving whatever is arising. And that's a choice that we all have, and we have it every moment of the day. But how often do we exercise that choice? Most of the time we spend our lives being focused and fixated and obsessed with the objects. We want the ones we want. We want to get rid of the ones that we don't want. We want to make sure that the ones that we have are affirming the idea of who we think we are. We want to get rid of the ones that don't affirm the idea of who we think we are. And it's not peaceful. (laughs) In fact, it's a little bit crazy-making. Because we don't have control over what we experience. Not like that. We have control over the way we move our attention, but we don't have control over what things arise. And we don't have a button to just make it delete. (laughs) So we're trying to make things be something which is impossible. And then we wonder why we're so tired so much of the time, why we feel so anxious, why we feel so frightened, why we feel so nervous, why we feel so unsettled. Because we're asking ourselves, we're asking our body, we're asking our minds, we're asking the world around us to be responsive in a way that it cannot be. And so the blessings of the practice is is that it holds our nose to the grindstone long enough so that we can begin to see what we're doing and begin to make different choices. So that the, the radiant luminosity of the mind, which is present in awareness, is something that we can lean into as a choice. And that choice is present, independent, whether what is arising is pleasant, unpleasant, whether it's scary or anxious, whether it is something which is terrifying, whether it's absolutely compelling, or whether we hate it. We still have the ability to lean into the mind that knows. And when we do that, then what happens is is that it creates this spaciousness around whatever it is that we're experiencing. And so rather than feeling like I am in battle with it, there's the knowing. And in the knowing, there's much more capacity to see the causes and the conditions that have given rise to this and the perspective to see what kind of choices that we have and how do we want to relate to this? Now, it isn't as if relaxing attention into awareness dissolves the world, where we cease to have relationships, where we cease to have responsibilities, where we cease to have time commitments, where we cease to have any kind of obligations, duties, or bills to pay. It doesn't do that, unfortunately. But what it does do is it can shift the habitual responses that we have to all of those by allowing us to register that it isn't me experiencing it, but something arising 
in awareness, known in awareness and releasing in awareness. And when I don't constellate a me experiencing an it, then there's a lot more space around the choices that are available in how to respond. Each of us has different things that work in terms of ways that support our ability to access this. And one of the things that's been a really strong support for me is nature. So Terry, my dear friend Terry, she knows that for me she likes that I like to spend time in nature. So she said, where would you like to go? I said, rocks. I want rocks. And for me, the reason why I like rocks is because rocks don't flap in the same way that my mind can flap. You know, I live next to the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs, which is an unbelievably beautiful and spectacularly powerful land formation. It's, the rocks are 160 million years old, some of them 220 million years old. They're part of the first Rocky Mountains. We're on the third set of Rocky Mountains. Okay. And I have gone to the rocks agitated and upset and confused and flipped out and freaked out and sorrowful and heartbroken and, you know, overwhelmed. And the rocks don't move. And they don't move not just metaphorically they don't move. They don't move in terms of their energetic response to receiving me when I come agitated. And when I lean into the rocks, some part of me trusts that they have the capacity to hold everything that I'm experiencing. And I let go of trying to figure it out myself. And as I let go of trying to figure it out myself, then attention begins to move into this open, spacious awareness. This open, spacious awareness has a radically different relationship than I do. This radical, spacious awareness pervades everything. It pervades time. It pervades space. It pervades everyone. And I am not separate from it. But I'm not the origin of it. I am part of a field of undifferentiated awareness. And when attention relaxes there, then what I notice is is that everything that had been agitating to me before ceases to be a problem. Not because the circumstances have changed, but because there's all of a sudden a huge space to hold it in that isn't moving in response to it. It's a little bit like taking a teaspoon of of salt and putting it in half a cup of water and drinking it. It's really salty, you know? But if we put it in a swimming pool, we won't taste it. When the field of awareness gets sufficiently large, then the irritation of the components of what we're experiencing changes. Now, one of the ways in which this luminant radius mind has impacted 
is through allowing me to connect with a kind of joy that feels intrinsic. It doesn't feel fabricated. It feels like it's the joy that's there when everything else falls away. Now, (coughs) I have come from a life where being a drama queen was something I was quite a professional at. (laughs) You know, I could make anything extremely exciting and absolutely horrific. That was like my, my specialty, the drama queen's specialty. And so life was an oscillation between unbelievable intensity that was either fabulous or horrible. And for me, even ground was like death, you know? Because to not be extremely excited or utterly despairing meant that I couldn't locate myself. And not being able to locate myself meant that I associated that with something that was worse than death. When there's the ability to learn how to lean into awareness rather than grab hold of objects and identify with them, we've got another refuge. We've got another place of locating beingness rather than me. When we have another place of locating beingness, then rather than feeling disappointed or dismayed or distraught when we stop this huge flip from intensely high to intensely distraught, there's this like, wow, you know? The ordinariness of life comes alive in like a kind of colorful way where it starts like pulsating. It starts, there's a radiance that's present in everything. And the joy to be able to notice that, to feel that, to respond to that, to just be with that, is a different kind of joy than the joy that we feel from entertainments or from celebration or from um, a kind of joy that has a bubbly quality to it. That joy has been a key factor in giving me more understanding about the qualities of kindness and compassion and equanimity. Because it has more of an evenness to it and it has an unbounded quality to it. It's almost like it's not determined by the particulars of what's actually arising in the field. Yesterday, I I came and I drove down from Santa Rosa where I was visiting my mom. And somebody very kindly drove me from Petaluma. I was giving a talk at another group last night. And we had a few minutes, um, 15 minutes, where I could walk. And we were by Lake Merritt. We walked. We were by Lake Merritt. And, And then I thought, well, actually, I really don't need to be walking. What I need to do is to sit by a tree. So I went and I found the biggest tree that I could find and I sat down and I noticed as soon as I sat down that there was this extraordinarily strong stench of urine and beer, you know. It's not pleasant. But what I also noticed was that the tree, independent of the urine and the beer, was actually very vital, very alive, and quite happy that I was sitting there. 
And so when I leaned attention into the ground underneath me and the happiness and the solidity and the vitality of the tree, it wasn't that I blocked out this unpleasant aroma, but it wasn't overwhelming my senses. And so the experience of sitting there was actually very restorative and refreshing. So where we place our attention has a huge impact on what our experience is. And that is the kind of like the miracle of of what happens in meditation is that we can be in a situation that ordinarily would be uh, very activating and learn how to dial into the particular that actually gives rise to the feeling of joy. Not by dismissing, not by denying, not by rejecting, not by being a Pollyanna, but by leaning in to something that is open and vast and spacious and peaceful, and through that, being able to focus on the particulars that are actually exquisite in the midst of something that's not exquisite. James made reference to what it's like being a bhikkhuni and how it is that we're pioneers, that I'm pioneer and Ajananda Bodhi, Ayananda Bodhi, and Santa Chita, pioneer, and Ayasantusika, pioneer. We're all pioneers. And one of the things about being a pioneer is that we're tired a lot of the time <laughs> because we're carving new ground. So if you imagine having you know, endless fields of snow and you had to break it and you didn't have a snow plow, that's a little bit what being a bhikkhuni is like. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trotting new ground, we're breaking new ground, and there isn't yet enough of us to like, pace it so that we can just take turns. You know, and follow well-trodden paths. And certainly there have been times over these last several years where you know, I have been uh, distressed. I have been uh, full of sadness or, uh, or confusion or not sure if it's going to work out, if there's enough support for this to work out. Living on alms you know, in a place where the, the culture around me isn't that interested or are supportive. You know, there are a couple people, but not, I don't have a group of people like this coming to listen to talks that I give and when in my own place, you know. So there's been a kind of like a weariness and doubt that arises. And, you know, and just the simple, like, survival instincts. Is, it, is there going to be enough support to make this work? And there's been lots of times when I actually didn't know. You know, I'm not sure. And there were periods of like, I think for about three and a half years or four years, what I felt like was like hanging by a piece of dental floss over a 10,000 foot crevasse. You know, it was, security was not like offered. But even still with all of this stuff that was unsettling, there still is the way to touch into the object or to lean into the awareness and to watch the difference between the actuality of what was happening and the story that I was making around what was happening. You know, to see the difference between whether there actually wasn't enough support 
or whether it was activating a deep-seated structure internally that was hungering for a kind of support that I had never received and using the situation as a context for this deeper lack of security to place itself and then turn around and agitate. And so the only way that I was able to work through these various different mind states that were turbulent and unsettled was to lean in to what I could trust and relax there, surrender to that and let go of trying to figure it out and have an answer and then come back to just some very basic, simple things like, you know, do I have a roof right now? Is there enough food for today? Do I have enough clothes so that I'm not going to freeze until tomorrow? So rather than figure out a week plan or a three-year plan or a five-year plan, it was like, what about the next two days? And will I be okay for the next two days? And when I would keep coming back to, well, yeah, I'm going to be okay for the next two days, then I can realize that some of the agitation of what I was experiencing was a projection onto the future. It wasn't actually based in the present. And then what I needed was to gather in the skill and the care and the kindness to begin to hold what are these deep-seated insecurities that are projecting themselves onto the situation that are asking for care. And how can I bring this quality of undifferentiated awareness into that level of, of pain? How can I bring this quality of awareness that seems to pervade everything and bring it right where I feel split and, and tormented? And so in this way, the quality of awareness, the luminous radiant mind, is not something that lives in a dualistic relationship with the world. It's not like we have some access to that and hang out there forever. It's like that access gives us the capacity to bring right back into where is the ache and how can I be with that in a way that allows it to heal and to release. We were in Tilden today and Terry was telling me about this um, proposal that's going ahead to clear-cut the eucalyptus trees. And I... My first question is, you know, is Berkeley actually allowing this to happen? And, you know, the response was, is that it's not up to Berkeley to decide, you know? It's not a popular vote as to whether this actually goes ahead or not. And so there's an an inevitable experience of, like, the grief of navigating a, a dearly beloved wilderness area that is the source of nourishment for such a large number of beings that is going to undergo a massive amount of, of destruction and change. And so uh, the, the, the response is, okay, so that if we cannot stop that, then what is a wise response to meet that? And so Terry was reminding me of having been on an airplane reading about the ordination of the trees in Thailand. 
But that ordinating the trees is not going to help because they're going to be cut down anyway. But what we could do is, you know, bring the quality of blessings into the space. And so I was just, you know, we were just thinking and I was just imagining, you know, people going into the thrift star stores and buying sheets and slicing them up into strips and, and then doing ceremony around the eucalyptus trees. And every tree that you were involved with ceremony with tie a band around so that the people in the city know there's a sense of sacredness that's happening, not as a way of punishing or dividing or agreeing or disagreeing, but as a way of recognizing that we have the ability to bring the quality of conscious awareness and blessing even in the face of something that is unfortunate. And be present with the trees and be present with the living beings that are dependent on those trees. So that rather than split in terms of whether I like it or I don't like it, I agree or I don't agree, we can, we can bring a heart that is radiant, that is full of compassion, that is able to be present, that's able to stand in the middle and do something that is noble, that is wholesome, that is a blessing, that unifies rather than divides. This is one of the signals, this is one of the signs, this is one of the indications of this awareness that is all-pervasive, is that it seeks to find solutions that are blessings, that bring about the awareness of a different kind of consciousness. That seeks to meet and to respond rather than to react. That holds in the heart both the agony as well as the possibility some consciousness, some blessing can emerge through care, through attention, through being in the right relationship with these trees and with all of the different living beings that are dependent on them. It's not just about what happens when we're sitting here on the cushion, and it's not just what happens during a meditation group. It's how we bring this into the various different parts of our lives and what that looks like. And how we express that is going to be dependent on each of us. I just recently came from Shravasti Abbey, which is the place that Venerable Tupton Children has founded and has created. And if you have never been there, I would encourage you to go. It is an awesome place. It's in Washington. It's out of Spokane. And uh, she's created a training monastery for Tibetan nuns. And it is extremely impressive what's going on there. 
And we were there because there was a there was a monastic gathering, and in this monastic gathering were Theravadan and and Tibetan and Zen monks and nuns from mostly the West Coast, but some coming from various different parts of the country. The youngest monastic had been in robes for a month. The oldest monastic had been in robes for 43 years. And it is impressive because in our traditions of origin, it never would happen that a traditions of various different kinds would make together, listen to each other, share in a way where we were all enriched by the discussion. We were all enriched by the sharing and a way in which whatever the ceremony of the place we were staying at was the pujas that we would all engage in. And one of the things that was apparent, even though the title of the conference of this particular gathering was The Joys and the Challenges of Monastic Life, was the amount of joy that was present in that room. And so when there are the ability to practice with a great deal of depth, to go through the doubts, to go through the various different layers of uncertainty, to go through the challenges, the meeting of the challenges is itself a kind of joy. And as we meet those challenges where it increases our confidence in the practice, then we begin to understand how the practice is a, is a, is a refuge that we can rely on no matter what's going on around us. And that's awesome. Because none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow in terms of the kinds of challenges that we have to face. And yet when we have something that we have confidence will support us no matter what we are dealing with, then that allows us to relax. And that relaxation is not a relaxation that is devoid from anxiety and fear. It's a relaxation that allows us to embrace and meet the anxiety and the fear and transform it. So when I do a chant in the, before I give a Dhamma talk, the implicit um, message in that chanting is to listen to what I'm going to offer from the perspective of really investigating to see whether what I have said is resonating with what you understand to be true. And if that's the case, then to reflect on it. But I get really crabby when people believe me. (laughs) Because I'm not interested in convincing somebody that you believe me. What I am really interested in is that people inquire that they are in resonance with a truth that they can stand by, that they can actually stand with. So I'm happy to offer these reflections for contemplation and consideration and be very interested to field questions or comments or discussion for the next period of time. Good good evening and thank you. Um, I, I really understand the point you were making about the trees, about meeting difficult circumstances with a sense of grace and a sense of appreciation. And I'd like to reassure you that getting rid of the eucalyptus, eucalyptus trees are weeds. 
They were imported from Australia 150 years ago. They take over the current ecosystem, and getting rid of them will open the East Bay Hills to having the authentic ecosystem. Nothing can grow under eucalyptus trees. The acid from their leaves poisons everything. So getting rid of them is a blessing rather than a difficulty. I just want to offer that to you. There are not a lot of creatures that are dependent on the eucalyptus trees, quite the opposite, as it turns out. Thank you. The, the counterpoint to that, one of my favorite... I, I, yeah. I'm just wondering, before we go into a, a debate about whether the trees should or should not be cut, I, I'm, what I'd like to invite is, is a questions that are about the practice as we're experiencing it and to see if we can let them, because we don't have much time, we can take this time to move more into a discussion around that. Hmm. One of the interesting, one of, the interesting uh, one of my favorite um, rangers at Tilden Park um, talked about the ecosystems that do exist in the, red, in the eucalyptus trees and the value of learning to find a balanced approach um, and looking at it really kind of from an open mind of saying, you know, he, he recognized eucalyptus were kind of a weed and, um, and yet the, there are owls that live in the eucalyptus trees and so on. Um, hmm. The, the question would be, I suppose, um, when, we're, when we're living life, there are always controversies and differences of opinions, and, and how do we bring that awareness to, um, to controversies like you know, political, political situations and finding uh, equanimity within, um, within a, a realm where lots of people have lots of opinions, even people that sit together may have differences of opinions. I mean, we have an easy way in Berkeley of, of thinking everybody should be pretty far left, and, and it's not uncommon in meditation contexts for people to, um, to assume that everybody should be left. And yet, there somehow is an awareness that allows us to be open and kind, perhaps, to everyone. I think one of the things about awareness that helps us with this question is is that it helps us be able to recognize a view for a view. Okay? So without awareness, we see a view as truth. Yeah? And then when we see a view as truth, then we feel really compelled and often righteous to defend it. And then my view might be in conflict with your view, and then your righteousness about your view then battles my righteousness about my view, and we're not listening to each other. We're just pounding each other with our righteousness. So the way awareness can support this is is that when we are able to recognize a view as a view and then have a little bit of space around it, then there's more capacity for tolerance for recognizing that there can be other views. And then when there's tolerance for recognizing that there can be other views, then we can be more congruent with our values for being kind and respectful when we've got a bunch of different views that are together in the same space. Now, the whole art of navigating controversy and discussions is an art form. 
And one of the things about sitting silently is it doesn't necessarily give us the skills to navigate that kind of an art form. And so it's really useful to hang out with people who have spent time developing those skills to begin to see how that quality of leaning into awareness is one of the things that they use when they're facilitating discussions where there's a whole bunch of different views. And one of the things that somebody who's an excellent facilitator does is is that they don't decide which views are acceptable and which views are not acceptable, but they make a space to welcome all the views that are present and touch the human being underneath each of those views, that they have a right to be heard and to express themselves. And then, depending on what the agenda is of the meeting or the agenda is of the facilitator, and then makes the best decision to move forward based on the different opinions. So what can happen when we don't have that sense of awareness is, is that we just feel that view, or that we feel the thoughts, we feel the emotions, and then we identify with them. And then we feel that our job is to push them onto others. And that doesn't help listening. So when we have another sense of refuge, then that gives us much more capacity to recognize that there are a whole variety of views. And there are a whole variety of people who have them. And every single human being has the right to be respected as a human being, even if the view that they have is absolutely not what we agree with. As a human being, they have the right to be recognized as being human. Does that help? Yeah. The question I'd like to ask is, um, as, as with any practice, there's the idea, and then we're sort of where the rubber hits the road, um, so to speak. And Say that again. I didn't hear it, it. Um, as with any practice, there's the, there's the idea, the concept that's, thrown out, and then there's the interpretation and how one uh, actually practices that. Um, and the, the question I have is, um, so when there is something that's very uncomfortable or you're not sure how to navigate or those sorts of things where um, you... You know, it's not like sitting on a cushion. You can't just say, "Excuse me, can I take a you know half an hour break and go sit somewhere?" How how do you um, meet those emotions and the pieces that um, may be uncomfortable yet still stay engaged in some way with what is going on that you need to interact with or or handle? Well, we live in a world where there's. Um kind of like the illusion of confidence that is kind of assumed we should be manifesting at all times. That we should be clear and have the answers to everything no matter what's going on. And I don't know exactly how this happened, why we feel this way, but it's not what any of us always feel. So the reality is is that there's plenty of times when we have doubt and we have confusion we don't know or we need a time to just put the pieces together. So you know, the way I, I do it when I'm managing it is, is that I just, I just track. I'm in relationship, and I say, 
I need a couple of minutes or I need a half an hour or I need three days to figure out what I think about this. And so I'm in relationship. I haven't disappeared. But I don't know the answer right now. And it's going to take me some time before I know. And if I don't get back to you in three days, then send me another email or contact me again and just see how I'm doing with this. You know? So part of the problem is, 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 is that we have the assumption that we have to know. And that assumption we overlay on top of the general feeling of discomfort of not knowing. And then we add more anxiety and pressure that then con- compounds it and makes it worse. I don't know. That's the truth. And it, the world has not stopped. It's actually okay that I don't know. Um, what do you do if there's like an image, say like a violent image from a movie that, and it's actually a movie that I haven't even seen, but that someone just described to me that has been, uh, sort of, I don't know, like unprocessed in my head coming up you know, every couple, every several months or something for years. Um, and, like, what do you do when something like that arises and it's so, it feels so um, inhumane and, and uh, it's just, I, I just want it to go away, but I know that that's not, that it doesn't work that way. Well, I think for all of us, there's a really big journey of recognizing the degree to which, as human beings, we can be inhumane, as well as to really get the degree to which we can be wise and compassionate. Both ends of those spectrum are pretty mind-boggling. And both ends of those spectrum can really short-circuit our normal um, thinking. So if we're on the end of the spectrum for whatever which reason, something has happened, you've been described a scene in a movie, it doesn't even have reality to it, but it's touching some kind of horror of what is actually potentially possible in this human realm. Then what I would do is I would meet the horror, the like like the shuddering, like the the way in which you can have shivers up your spine about what is actually possible in this human realm. Touch that very gently. Not deep dive into it, but touch it very gently and notice the unwillingness to actually be with that. How deeply unsettling that is. Because what that does is it points us back to what we can do under certain circumstances. And that's just almost impossible to wrap our minds around. So when we touch that, then what that can do is bring a lot of determination to do what ever we can so that we are not moving in that direction. That we can have confidence as much as any of us are able, we would not make choices to allow us to make 
those kinds of behaviors or decisions. But we don't know, because we don't know, you know, first of all, it was a fictional thing, but second of all, we don't know what happens when we're under extreme pressure, the kinds of things that we are capable of doing. We don't know that. And so the practice can help us move in a direction of confidence. But there's always a question mark where we don't actually know what's going to happen until we've lived through it. So rather than push it away, you know, touch it, and then emphasize, reinvest in the, in the efforts that you are making to live with integrity, to live with compassion, to live with generosity, and allow those things, reflect on them, allow them to tether you to your own goodness. So rather than feeling frightened that there's some kind of a, a, a monster lurking inside of you that's going to jump out and, and hijack you and take you on a run, you know, if you're not looking for five seconds, begin to really consider the practices that you're doing that keeps you tethered to, to what you value. I just want to um, share an addendum to that, um, which is um, that often, just as you say, having the the courage to go right into it can um, go deeper than and process and find a an awareness and a wisdom that can hold it. But it's also true. Uh, particularly, say, in the example you give where an image gets stuck in the mind um, where it's more... It's important to um, not always or know what your limits are and know when you are just re-traumatizing and when you are um, intensifying or when you're somehow engaged in a less than skillful way as I'm sure you know the the Buddha's um, strategies for dealing with distracting thoughts and some of them it's turn to something else don't give energy to that what is sometimes called forgetfulness and inattention Um, and I've had you reminded me as you asked that a question on retreat, certain images that kept on coming up again and again, and it wasn't so much um, man's inhumanity to man, just really weird, bizarre images that got like got stuck on in the in the hard drive, and um, you know, I, w- I won't name them, but. Uh, <laughs> I, it's just kind of really silly things. And I would find that um, just giving them the space and turning my attention elsewhere can be, uh, can be just as uh, skillful. So it's not like one size fits all or one recipe fits all. You just have to see, okay, can I be balanced and is this rich in this inquiry? Am I growing? Am I deepening? Or is it not? Is it either confusing, a struggle, the mind gets contracted, I can't stay with it, and it's just kind of 
hitting the groove and hitting the replay button again and again. So I uh, just want to add that as a, another dimension of that. It's just yeah. Why don't you, um, uh, if you, you know, we, I usually do a, a few moments of uh, of, of meta, either in in okay. English or uh, as you like, uh, and dedicate the the merit of the, the evening. So just take a moment and imagine somebody who absolutely has your best interests at heart. really only interested in you being well and flourishing. Imagine them in front of you. Imagine looking into their eyes, looking at you, just so happy to see you, so deeply delighted to see you, and letting that in. Letting that in and and letting yourself feel what it feels like to be so cared for. Notice any change in your body, in your muscles. Notice what happens to your breath. Notice what the changes into your mood and to the thoughts that come. And allow this feeling quality of kindness and care to, to suffuse your whole body, heart, mind. And when you feel that, when you know that, when you taste that quality, then you can drop the image and then you can keep generating that quality of loving kindness until you feel so full that it starts to spill out and over. And when it spills out and over, then you can share it with mentors and teachers family and friends, with people you don't know, with all beings in the whole world. And now changing the context, and just for a moment consider all of the many different choices that you had in how you could have spent your time this evening, and that you, all of us, chose to be here tonight. And consider what it is to spend time in silence and meditation with guidance, of, with instruction on how to meditate, how to contemplate, and then contemplating the Dhamma, reflecting on the Dhamma and sharing together in the Dhamma. And this creates a blessing field, a field of goodness, And this field of goodness is something that we can intentionally share with all beings everywhere. I'm going to close with a chant that I like very much. It's about the chants, the words and the meaning of the chant is allowing the devas to feel the blessings of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Yani da butani samangatani umani vayani 
Thank you very much for being with, with us, Oma. Thank you for inviting. Beautiful sharing of the Dharma. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Have a really good week. Share your love well. See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.